All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. And now one of my favorite note to self episodes about how to get fear of missing out, FOMO, out of your life and get more joy of missing out. JOMO. Happy New Year, my dear listeners. FOMO, fear of missing out. And the new, cheekier, JOMO, joy of missing out. I mean, many of us throw around these acronyms like they've been around forever. But real, actual people came up with these terms. And relatively recently, Katerina Fake popularized FOMO. And her BFF, Anil Dash, countered with JOMO. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. It's funny that we would be talking to each other across the continent while I have this large fuzzy microphone in my face. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Today, when FOMO met JOMO, the two sides of living in a world where you always know what you're missing. We bring it all together to hash out how we got here and where we're going and what we can do here in the present to make living with the Internet more about JOMO and less about FOMO. FOMO? Fear of missing out, Grandma. I heard my daughter's babysitter using the term. She said she was not invited to a party one night and she had dreadful FOMO. And I thought to myself, wow, that really exemplifies the social media experience and seeing that something is going on that you're not participating in and having this low-level envy or anxiety about it. I wrote about this in 2011, and here it is, 2016, we're still discussing it. I wrote this piece called The Joy of Missing Out, and it was literally inspired by the night my son was born because I was supposed to go to uh, a Prince concert the night uh, that my wife went into labor. I'm Anil Dash. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Makerbase, which is a community for people that make apps and websites. And I'm a writer and activist trying to improve the technology industry. This is Katerina Fake, serial entrepreneur, investor, and lover of the internet. Anil and Katerina became friends online back in the last century, when most of us weren't living so much of our lives on the Internet. They were part of an early community of bloggers and technologists, the real pioneers. It was a really small scene, and everyone knew each other. Very different from how Katerina describes online culture today. You never see any of the doldrums, the dullness, the boredom, the bad days, the all of the things that are not presentable, not photogenic. And all of those, this constant sort of self-presentation that I call social peacocking 
is just kind of a mechanism for resentment, envy, and dissatisfaction. I mean, the inherent irony here being that you are actually one of the people who created some of these technologies that let us have see so much of what's going on in people's lives and let people peacock like this. Well, I think that this is something that I, in my career, have tried very strongly to circumvent this tendency of people to productize themselves, to become a shinier, newer, more polished and quote unquote better version of themselves that we don't ignore large aspects of ourselves online, that our full humanity is represented there with all of its flaws. I wrote a subsequent blog post also about the shadow as exemplified by Carl Jung, this idea that, you know, the shadow, which if it doesn't exist, you know, it leads to big problems. And I think that social media has a very strong tendency to ignore the shadow. What do you mean by that? The shadow in Carl Jung are the things that we prefer not to present about ourselves or acknowledge about ourselves or are unconscious about ourselves, such as, you know, our childishness or our, you know, envy or resentment. And, you know, celebrity is a great example of the creation of the shadow. We put all of our effort and attention into paying attention to people that we idolize, that we think are somehow better than ourselves, leaving ourselves out and giving all of the light to the celebrities and leaving only, frankly, the shadow for ourselves. So I want to switch over to the guy sitting across from me here. I think back to when I first saw Katerina's work on Flickr, it wasn't a tool for performing yourself to the world. It was in in most cases about something that you created and wanted to share that perhaps people could gather around and respond to and have a conversation around together. And that's very different than how we usually perform social media today. And I think – Can we pinpoint like when that happened, like that <laughs> transitioning from like, look, I made this. Let me show you to look who I am. Well, I'm amazing. There's a lot of choices that happen on the way there. I mean one of the things is that – I think Katarina talks about what FOMO is in culture really well. But it's also important to understand FOMO is cultivated by the economic model of most of these social networking apps – the language within the tech industry is user engagement and activity and how sticky are their eyeballs. So the reason people feel stress or fear or this tension around not participating in social media is because, well, that's how the tools were built, especially services that rely on advertising or other sorts of ways of bartering your attention depend on. It's the currency. Yeah, absolutely. Social currency and like real currency. And economic currency, yeah. So do you remember when Katarina wrote this piece about sure. FOMO? I felt a lot like, oh, finally somebody's given a name to a concept in culture that enables us to have a conversation about it. And boy, that's a powerful thing. As soon as you've got a, a sort of a hook to respond to, now we can have a more thoughtful conversation about it. I think of Katarina as like the Eskimos having a dozen words for snow – there's all of these new emotions and sensations that the internet, that social media in particular, has brought up in us. So, like, to be able to name it is very strong. And, Anil, I want to ask you, when you decided to sort of play with FOMO and turn it into something else? Uh, well, I, I wrote this piece called The Joy of Missing Out. 
And it was literally inspired by the night my son was born because I was supposed to go to uh, a Prince concert the night uh, that my wife went into labor, and I love Prince. You're, you don't just love Prince. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a scholar of his work. <laughs> and I thought, boy, I'm going to you know, regret missing this show. This is going to be you know, Madison Square Garden. It's going to be amazing. And instead, I like I felt nothing. I was like, I, I don't care. Like this is the most profound moment of my life. So like, I'll go to another concert some other time. And it stuck with me. I didn't write about it right away, but that was this dramatic. And I mean, you know, to be affected by your child's birth is not exactly the most profound and unique thing to happen to somebody. Everybody is there, but it stayed with me in how I was perceiving what I saw on social media, where I spend a lot of time. And I am a person that spends tons of time online. And enjoys interacting with lots of people. And I have a fairly large network, so I like to be able to connect to people. But when I put my phone down, I didn't miss it. Yeah. Tell me how you codified the term. Like, tell me uh, about that the moment. The joy of missing out? That was, oh, gosh. I mean, part of it, obviously, just reactive. It's like, well, these are terms that need phrasings and culture. Part of it was, I think anybody else who had popularized a phrase like FOMO, as Katerina had, would have probably put out three different books and a TED Talk and have a podcast <laughs> and, you know, like all manner of insufferability. So much of the response were people being defensive, right, which was I fear missing out, but I feel bad about it. And nobody was talking about it being a happy, joyous, peaceful, tranquil, like placid kind of experience. And at first I was like, am I the only one who's happy? And I was like, I can't be the only one who's happy. And so some of it was about asserting that sort of comfortability, and there actually is a way to not just not miss it, but to actually really enjoy where you're at. And that was the most important part about, you know, joy. I think one of the things that you feel in a media-saturated environment like we live in, information-saturated environment, is that you're gradually trading off full years of your life in exchange for entertainment, trivia, and other meaningless aspects. And that when you can be conscious and aware of the magical moments, these singular moments of your life where none of those distractions are impeding your sense of yourself and who you are in your life and where you are and the people around you and the world that you live in. It's a really wonderful thing. So those are the things that sometimes you feel as if you want to keep some part of yourself away from the internet. You want to keep something for yourself for your family, for your friends, that you want to stay offline in many ways. And this becomes a very important part of who you are. But that you guys, like, here's the thing. Like, I, I would have thought that this FOMO thing would be transitional. People getting used to, like, the social media, seeing how everybody lives. And then once they got used to it, you'd think they'd get better at not second-guessing themselves all the time. But, but here we are four years, five years later, and we're still talking about it even more. That idea that technology has values and ethics baked into it and we need to be mindful of them, that was something that was very much in evidence and I think the community that Katerina and I come from that was making technologies 10 and 15 years ago. I don't think Silicon Valley today, the technologists who are coming of age today who have always had access to the internet and were born into it, understand that there are ethical choices that have to be reckoned with in the way that we build our apps and the way we build our technology. And well, so, that's really depressing. I mean, Katarina, I mean, do you agree with that? I really think the way that software is designed comes from the people who design it, the founders of the companies, the 
Mark Zuckerberg-esque-ness of the Facebook, for example. I think that the people who are creating the software build unconsciously into the software their own assumptions and biases and mores and values are very deep in the software. So and what are some so, of your favorite sort of products right now that you feel hmm. do stay true to what you and Anil are talking about, to the real core ethics that you guys held very dear? I think that a lot of people, when they build software, believe that they have written the code and then are done. And that is where the problems begin, because that is the starting point. Because without all of the work that goes into creating a civilized society online, you know, it devolves into don't read the comments. That is where it goes. That is where it, it is a race to the bottom. And one of the very first online communities, it was a bulletin board even before the web came around. The builders of the well, which were Stuart Brand and I think Kevin Kelly and Howard Rheingold and that whole community really showed how to create civilized communities online. Yeah, like what? An explicit declaration of accountability. The people running the community were explicit about expecting members of the community to hold themselves and each other accountable for what they said and how it impacted others. If I walked into the lobby of Google's offices and started shouting obscenities and epithets at people, I would at the very least be asked to leave. I would certainly not be given one of their free juices to drink and be like, come here and hang out. If I do the exact same thing on YouTube, which they own... It's unbelievable. There's no recourse. There is no accountability. They don't object. And their argument is, well, we couldn't possibly build you know, the technologies, the systems, or have enough people monitoring to see what happens. And you know, I said, well, if only you were one of the richest companies in the history of the world and oh, had billions wait. of dollars of resources. Oh, wait. <laughs> hey, wait. Oh. Hey, wait. I, I, that, that is you. And they're like, well, we can build rockets and self-driving cars and we can have these, you know, hovering internet connection platforms that are tied to hot air balloons, but we can't solve people being rude to each other in the comments on YouTube. And I'm like, you know, this isn't a can't, this is a won't. I mean, I guess part of the problem to me is like the social contract is very clear when it happens in person and it gets a little bit less clear. It's ambiguous. You start to wonder about free speech, all of Mm. these things online. Well, the free speech thing is this red herring where what we've done is we've let abusers define the framework of what free speech is. So in that context, like, of course, the tools also make us fear that we're missing things out. Like, of course, they reward behaviors that are about preening and peacocking and showing off because the entire structure of how they're built is about rewarding fairly antisocial behaviors because those are easy to monetize. What else could that look like? Gosh, there, there are a lot of other models. There are a lot of small communities on the internet that work great. What always happens in, in sort of classic Silicon Valley short term thinking is, well, that won't scale. What are we going to do when we have a billion users? That's what I was just thinking. And you said, well, maybe you don't have a billion users, right? Like maybe that's a bug, not a feature. If you build a site and say, well, we want to have 100,000 users or we have 10,000 users and we want to treat them really well and make sure we're giving them something that brings them joy in their lives. I just want to ask you guys, I mean, I'm sitting here with two people who essentially made popular the words FOMO and JOMO. Not only did you do that, but you make a lot of the tools that we use. And you also understand how a lot of your colleagues or peers, older and younger, make other tools that we use. Does that mean you no longer experience FOMO and you 
only experience Jomo because it's like, because you so deeply get it. <laughs> it's a lot of work to tilt the meter more towards the Jomo end of the spectrum, actually. And I think it's a lot more difficult if you have been immersed in it from the get-go, from the very start. It's harder to see. You can't see the outlines. You don't see an alternative. You haven't experienced things differently. That's not to say, though, that we're not susceptible to the enticements and temptations of social media and software. I'm much more interested in sort of systemic change, right? And I think we don't have ethics classes as part of the curriculum in computer science uh, courses. And we don't have basic civics lessons and sort of social obligation lessons and emotional intelligence lessons. Much less media literacy lessons. Exactly. In the context of where we teach people to build apps and services. It's sort of this like, it's not even an afterthought, it's a non-thought, right? That we have a social responsibility and an emotional responsibility to the people that use the technologies we create is almost seen as heresy in conventional tech. Now, there are still lots of people making lots of thoughtful things, you know, like Katerina and many others. But the default examples of, you know, the Facebooks and Ubers of the world really see it as almost an attack to even raise those issues. Yeah. And so to me, that's the work that is the the big challenge, even maybe more so than just myself. Like I'll always struggle with it and I'll go back and forth. It's the same as, you know, after the holidays, everybody wants to lose five pounds. I'm okay with having that battle ahead of me forever. But there's a bigger, more urgent thing, which is, how do we change the culture of what is seen as success in technology and that it has to be something that truly makes people satisfied and happy? You want to chime in just to finish up here, Katerina? It behooves us all to build these systems into our software, build the consciousness into our education, and just culturally make sure that we don't lose the human in the technology. You guys, this was so fun. I feel like I hung out with old friends. I guess I did hang out with old friends. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you. Indeed. Okay, friends, thank you so much for listening to this Encore episode of Note to Self. Yeah, we know Encore just means repeat, but um, we are out enjoying the holidays. And actually, we're also working really hard right now putting together our big privacy project that is launching in January. The project is called The Privacy Paradox, and you can sign up right now at privacyparadox.org. Put your email in the little box that comes up on the screen, and we will be in touch by a special newsletter in the new year. You can read our privacy statement while you're there, too. In the name of this project, we are making sure to be very clear and very respectful of your information. Meta? Yes. Okay, for now, the Note to Self team is Jenna Cagle, Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Megan Kunane and Ariana Tobin for their help with this episode, too. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Talk to you next year. Peace, love, and audio.